That's what's up. That's what's going on in my world. How old will you be? Let me uh, guess. 12? 13? <laughs> no, 14. Thank you. <clears throat> no, what? I will be 25. Really? Oh, the way you talk about Chris and I is that we're like light years apart from you. <laughs> yes. And? <laughs> we're, 30, we're 31. We're not that far. Dude, that's, yeah. oh my God. It does. You're like adults. When you, <laughs> That's the difference. When you're 25, it does feel a long way off, and then when you're 31, it feels like that was yesterday. <laughs> I'm 31. And I'm like, oh, 40 will be tomorrow. At this point, I'll be 50 next week. Will yeah. we still be in a pandemic at that point, or not? Obviously. <laughs> I'm at that sweet spot where I've just given up all hope on everything. This is life now. Welcome to nihilism. Yeah, what I really miss and want to get back to is RailsConf in person. I miss conferences and just hanging out with people in person. Are y'all going to go? You think? Because I guess for reference, they announced RailsConf registrations. I think the CFP process closed like a week or two ago. You guys think you're going to go the virtual? I submitted a a talk for virtual. I don't know if I'm going to go or whatever. I'm assuming that speakers, if you could accept it, get a, a ticket or whatever. But yeah, last year I didn't really watch anything. I watched the keynotes, I know. But I wish that there was a watch party thing going on so that it felt like you were there together with other people watching. I think um, they are. Which I think I mean, is the plan this year, but yeah. it wasn't really a thing last year. Last year was a very short time for them right. to figure things out. So it makes sense, but... It was very well done for RubyConf. And because the organizers are the same, I would imagine it will also be the same. It almost did, in a way, feel like... I mean, obviously, you don't get certain aspects. They tried to incorporate hallway tracks into it, and they created like events around it. So they did a really good job. And one thing I did like about the virtual format is the chat. So you have like live chat. People are in there talking about like what the speaker is talking about or answering. like Someone's like, hey, I don't understand this. And people are answering questions. So... I did like that aspect of it being virtual, but I agree. If you're not inclined to like just sit there and no one wants to just go watch all the YouTube videos, that's boring. But if you take those three days and you're like, these are the three days that I'm going to be at RailsConf, basically, just think about it like that, then I think you can get into it. Especially if you're, I don't know, if you want to get into it, you can. The last RailsConf I went to, the last in-person one, I only went to two talks because I mostly like, I'm just there to see friends I've met. It's a little hard for me, I think, because of my ADHD to be like, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch all these videos. And so I didn't do RubyConf, the virtual one, because I didn't really watch many of the free RailsConf videos. And like, I feel bad because, I don't know, I want to support the people who are putting all the time in to do those talks and such. But I'm at home so much right now, it's hard for me to just stay at home and watch programming talks. That takes a lot of focus that I don't particularly have right now. I feel you on that. Yeah, it's the same thing for me. Like, If I'm going to go to RailsConf in person, what I want to do is the things that I can't do from home, 
which is I can watch the talks later. But I, what I can't do is hang out with people that I haven't seen for a long time and grab dinner with them and whatever. Like those are the my favorite parts of the conference are fancy dinners. Those are the best. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing people again. And it's it's getting old. But. Did you either of you guys submit a talk? I did not. I have every year submitted a talk, like even when I knew nothing about Rails. And this year it like crept up on me to the point I didn't even know what was going on. So by the time I found out, it was like a day or two. And I was like, I don't have the mental fortitude to like do this right now. But I am giving a virtual talk at a meetup in June. Oh, cool. So what's that on? What they wanted me to talk about was... I don't even think I've talked about it here. I basically sponsored a junior to work on open source, open source that I cared about. And they wanted to talk about that because I feel like advocating for juniors is like important. And one big thing, because I'm friends with a lot of juniors and one common thing they always say when they're interviewing is like, oh, they rejected me because I don't have any experience. Like I hear that all the time. I'm like big, long sigh. It's a problem with the industry and especially with rails right now, I think. And I wanted to do something about it. So I think advocating for juniors is important. And so sponsoring this junior to do that was part of it. And also just like being more vocal about it on you know, social media and thinking about the topic. So the topic is uh, going to be firstly to cover the question that kind of prompted them to reach out in the first place was about sponsoring juniors and mentoring juniors and being an advocate for them. And it's also going to be like touching on like how us as seniors at companies, well, I guess not you, Chris, if you are in a company and your company always hires seniors, why aren't you asking the question, why are we doing this? What's the problem here? And like, how can we fix this problem? Because if we don't fix this problem, there's just going to be less and less Ruby developers. The boot camps that are teaching it are going to stop teaching it more. So if we can't find juniors jobs, and I don't know, I feel strongly about it because I was in that position once and I really had a lot of privilege and I was basically given a free ride and a lot of people helped me along the way. And now that I'm in the position I'm at, I want to help other people get to where I'm at. I love that. Yeah. Hiring juniors, you can like shortcut so much of their learning and teach them the right things instead of them like fiddling around for years trying to figure out like... Just something as simple as like how to write tests is super hard. But then if you like hire a junior and you teach them how to do it right and how to think about it, then they'll become not a junior in three months. Yeah. It happens fast. So you put them in a really good position. And also those people are oftentimes like they're really driven because they're really trying to break through a tough barrier, which is getting your first like dev job. So... Yeah, I think there's like a ton of undervalued benefits to that. And it's awesome to see that you're doing that because I would love to see that happen more often. And people just need like we talked about previously, like a playbook or whatever on how and why to do that. And those kind of your experiment of trying it. And that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. Like I said, I feel very strongly about this topic and I don't feel very strongly about a lot of topics to be fair, <laughs> but I feel very strongly about this one. Yeah. That's what I'll be doing. And if you guys have any ideas or the listeners have any ideas or things they think I should cover or want to cover, or they have any stories, I would love to hear about that because DHH has talked about this too. Like they want to have developers who are skilled in their way of developing. 
there's one thing to pull in a senior, but that senior is coming with a lot of baggage. And so, yeah, they can just be a code monkey and just like slap code all day long. But like at the end of the day, they're going to have differing opinions and this or that. So you can train these juniors to be like the ideal Rails developer for your team. And there's benefits to that. But there's also, I've seen instances where if you don't set them up for success and you don't have a system in place and you're not, you don't care about it and your seniors don't care about it, then I've seen it go badly as well. Yeah, I think that happens a lot, especially in like internship kind of things where it's like, they're not really treating them as investing in this person. They're like, yeah, we know we have them temporary or we pay them very little and don't like really invest in it. That happens all the time and it does not go well for anybody. And it's just sad to see like the unpaid internships and stuff. Just it's not a good move. No. Take it seriously. I helped start a thing a long time ago called Launch Code, which was Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square. He and myself and two other guys got together and like he was trying to figure out in St. Louis, he would love to have an engineering group for Square and build that out, but he was having trouble finding developers. So his idea was like, we'll figure out something and do a boot camp or whatever. And I was telling him like, I graduated with a CS degree and like a bunch of my friends who also graduated couldn't find jobs around here because like you're saying, everybody wants to hire someone who has experience and they don't even consider a degree in computer science like experience because you're not working on real products like that are live with real customers. So that makes sense. But I was like, we should like help those people. I had friends that went to a boot camp, like they went up to Chicago or Texas and then came back to St. Louis and still couldn't get a job. And it was like, what? So we ended up working on that where it was like, he knew everybody who runs all these companies like enterprise and whatever, and basically just set it up so that he'll talk to them, need developers. We got developers 15 bucks an hour for three months. And then you choose to hire them full time or not. And that worked out really well, actually, to the point where we interviewed someone every 15 minutes for three days straight from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It was insane because we got so many applicants who were like, it's an obvious thing. You can make a very good salary as developer. So that turned into a nonprofit that is here in several other cities, which is cool. But companies should just be able to do this themselves. They don't need a third party thing to organize that. So I would love to see that become more of a thing that companies can do themselves because it's not hard. Just offer somebody a kind of a trial to work together for three months and then hire them or don't. Yeah. I mean, basically everything you just said is going back to what my main call to action and all of this is. And it's more so targeted at the seniors. It's, hey, why aren't you as like a change factor in your organization? Like, Developers have a say and they have, they can make things happen if they really want to. So why are you totally fine and comfortable with your company not hiring juniors then being like, oh, I don't know why Ruby's in decline. This is why, because we've got this culture where we're not trying to hire juniors. And so how are we going to get more people in the industry? If you don't want Ruby to die, you need to hire juniors. You need to advocate for juniors. You need to help juniors. You can take some time and you can advocate for it. And if you care about it. And the problem is most people don't care. Most people don't even think about it. So that's my goal is to raise awareness and be like, hey, you, that, that developer that sits in the dark all day coding, you can make a difference, not only in the Ruby community, but in the lives of these people and for your company's overall like growth and maturity and just advocate for juniors. 
Yep, agreed. That's pretty solid. Chris, what was your submission to RailsConf on? Similar to Andrew, the deadline just appeared one day and I was like, oh, and then I was tired because it was like Sunday and then I didn't submit anything. And then I saw that they extended it a day. And so I just put together a quick submission. But I think it's just like I did last year, which was like trying to shine some light into some undervalued, underused features of Rails. Last year, I did the action text, rich text mentions and embeds and action text seems at the basics of, oh, cool. You can build a little WYSIWYG with a a click, but that's it. And it's not. And it's a lot more than that. And so the idea was for this year, maybe do something on action mailbox. And actually, Hey World is pretty cool use of that to be able to create a blog out of just sending an email, which is sweet. My idea was like, I built this little customer support app a long time ago for Hatchbox just for fun. And it became something I use every day. But it uses like Griddler and just some really old code, like some old bootstrap stuff that I did. And it just needs an update. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do this where I'll rebuild that and then give a talk on it. And so I will regardless be rebuilding that app at some point, but hopefully I'll be able to share that process of accepting inbound emails and processing those. Because I mean... If you're building a forum or anything similar to GitHub issues or something, one of the most convenient features of all time is the reply to this by email, a reply above this line kind of thing. And that is built into Rails, but hardly anyone talks about it. And so I wanted to pitch that as my talk submission. So fingers crossed, but if I don't do it for RailsConf, I'll do it for GoRails. So. <laughs> nice. You're right. There's a lack of Action Mailbox content and I want to see more. One thing I've always thought about building with Action Mailbox is if you're familiar with the... There's a company called MailTrap and it's basically a service where in staging or maybe production or development or whatever, they are basically a Rails-oriented... I don't think they're just Rails, but a Rails-oriented service where they will catch all your outgoing emails. So like any email you send in staging, like you obviously don't want to send to a customer if you're using like actual data. And it will basically just catch all of your emails. And it also is great for QA so that you can verify it. How many times have we coded an email and the email is funky foobar when you deploy it? Because it's hard to test, especially with the nuances that come with the stuff and things. So that's what I've always thought about building with it as well. So I'm excited to see what you come up with. Yeah. So I don't know how long the... It seemed like they got a a good amount of submissions towards the end there. It was like 40 some a day the last couple of days. So I don't know if they uh, got the same amount or what as usual, but we'll see. On that note of the features that people don't talk about a whole lot, I started digging into just wrapping Rails apps in Electron and Turbo iOS. And I didn't touch Turbo Android yet, but I think part of that was never really touched on too publicly with the Turbolinks versions because of them getting deprecated after a year or whatever. But that's another thing that I would very much like to work on and talk about more publicly and and just understand it myself better. Basecamp and Hay are very much mobile friendly, but they also only have one or two engineers on mobile or each platform or whatever, which is Amazing. But there's all this stuff with Turbo now that remember DHH or somebody was talking about the like 
the navigation replacements with the turbo stream events. And okay, I get you can do that. But like conceptually, how do you think about it? And then those things are not super well talked about yet. And I would love to see a lot more of that. It's trivial to just throw a web view that points to your web app, but then it's just a mobile browser and that's it. But really you want sort of the like tab navigation at the bottom and those like things that feel more native. So I think that's another topic to get into maybe this year. Well, I said at the beginning of the show, I was playing with Turbo the other day and I still don't understand. I don't understand why I don't understand. It's one of those things where I feel like I should understand. <laughs> it doesn't seem that complicated. And my brain is just, nah, we're going to take a pass on this one, bro. But hit us for the next one. Because I feel like I, I've worked on seamless reflex so much. I'm very familiar with this concept. It's not hitting in the right part of my brain. <laughs> yeah. So teach me over podcasting. <laughs> yeah, Turbo is interesting. A whole chunk of it out of the box is just Turbo Links which is nice, right? It's an enhanced version of that, but it's super straightforward. If you have any TurboLinks functionality, you just replace those events with Turbo and you're done, which is nice. But you also get all the form submission functionality now that you didn't before. And some of the kinks are still getting worked out of it, but like 99% of it's pretty solid these days, I would say. But the additions to just intercepting all your links is that your forms are also submitted with an Ajax request now out of the box. So a piece of confusion there is, do I still need the Rails UJS stuff for submitting forms? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes if you don't want them to work with the Turbo submission, but that will submit them as this interesting format called a Turbo Stream format that's actually built on top of HTML format. So it falls back naturally to HTML. So when you submit something to the server, it's just going to use the HTML format like normal, which is kind of nice. So you can progressively enhance your app as you go and you don't have to do anything special for your responses, but you can. So you can say format.turbostream in your controller and then say, hey, let's go replace this one piece of the page, not all of it or whatever. And it will override the HTML response, which is nice. And then inside of those TurboStream responses, the HTML that you put in there can have those like TurboStream events, which are just an HTML tag. Or another HTML tag you have is the TurboStream from. So one of the patterns that we had to do previously with Action Cable was we had to write a stimulus controller or something. If you go to GitHub, here's a good example of this. If you go to GitHub and you open up the issues and you click on an issue, they're using PJAX to change the page. And when you go to the issue, it will fire an event that tells the server, hey, we want to subscribe to WebSockets for this. And then when you leave that page, it unsubscribes. So Turbo now has Turbo Stream from, which does that automatically for you. So it's got its own little action cable connection in JavaScript there, just done for you, which is nice. Then you have these other elements for the turbo stream events, which are just DOM operations to like append and remove and stuff. So whereas cable ready would send an event over the WebSocket with JSON, the turbo stream events are just HTML and they're included in your HTML and they're invisible. But the JavaScript 
goes and looks for any of those. And then if it sees one, it will run that operation. So you can put your HTML template inside of that tag. And then the JavaScript sees it and says, okay, we'll run that and we can get rid of this TurboStream tag off the page or whatever when we're done. So that's a complexity of it that like now you get a simplified version of cable ready built in a way and like this ability to stream from things. And there's some other stuff too, but for the most part, you get all these pieces of functionality. And I've seen that cable ready is trying to mimic that same interface to keep it more consistent for people conceptually. And yeah, it's pretty cool because there's a lot of times where you don't want to receive, like on GitHub, you don't want to be on the on a repo, on any page in the repo and be getting messages for all of these different issues or pull requests or comments or whatever. You only want to see the ones that you're looking at. So that feature allows you to just subscribe to those events for whatever's on the page currently, which is pretty cool. And then them being HTML tags, you just render that out. You can cache it. You can do whatever you want and just send that back over and it's treated the same, which is pretty cool. So the stuff that I haven't gotten into much is there's some techniques you can use for that. It sounds like to deal with mobile navigation for your mobile, Hayes mobile app or whatever. So it feels more native and whatever. That stuff I'm not super familiar with yet, but I was getting the basics of an Electron app and a Turbo iOS app going this week. And they weren't too bad. Electron was really easy to set up. Then the Turbo iOS one was like... Oh boy. I can imagine. It was interesting because it worked out of the box, but it only worked because of the glitch.me example app that they have which is HTTPS and it's public URL. And in your iOS app, you actually have to enable HTTP requests. Like they're disabled by default. You have to be HTTPS. So you can enable that, but then it just hangs unless you're careful. And you have to actually export the Turbo JavaScript to the window in the browser. Otherwise, the mobile app can't actually reference that and it just hangs and does nothing and doesn't render anything. That tripped me up for a half an hour, an hour. So you have to like make sure that your JavaScript actually exports Turbo to the window, which I was not doing. Anything that starts with, it works, (laughs) is like the thing I relate to with the most. If you've been listening to the show for a bit, then you know that Jason and Chris have a crush on Laravel, and I basically battle JavaScript for fun. Regardless of what end of the stack and what language, they all have one thing in common, and that's Honey Badger. Stop wasting time configuring your tools and focus on shipping, knowing that no matter where you are, Honey Badger has your back. Oh, and speaking of shipping, the Honey Badger blog has been on fire recently. Seriously, and I don't say this lightly. Some of the best technical writing you're going to find all in one place. So go check that out. And while you're there, sign up for Honey Badger. Let them know he sent you. Thank you so much to Honey Badger for continuing to sponsor Remote Ruby and for not killing me for all the JavaScript errors I sent you this weekend. So you're saying like the turbo JavaScript functionality is like by default, right? It's not available on the window object, but in order for that stuff to work, you have to expose it. Anything you import with Webpacker will just be internal to Webpacker. So if you import Rails or jQuery or any of those things, 
you have to explicitly add those to the window so that you could even use them in the JavaScript console because normally they're only going to be available in that file that you require them or import them in. So like you have to import turbo and then assign window.turbo equals turbo in order to make that exposed for the iOS app to pick up. So it's kind of neat that like your JavaScript is accessible and runnable from the iOS code. So like it's able to work with the JavaScript inside of that browser from your Swift application or whatever. But I think one of the the toughest parts is probably that there's controllers and delegates and these other concepts in iOS and Android and Electron has its own kind of things, but Electron's a little bit more like using a browser, which is nice. But yeah, those concepts, I don't think most Rails developers understand them. So that's where things break down like really fast. And like building a mobile app is to make it feel native is a whole thing where you have to understand the concepts of building an iOS or Android app and then playing towards that. Yeah, you can slap your app into the adapter really fast in in 15 minutes, but to actually make it feel native is a whole other story. And it's going to be interesting to see those patterns. I'd love to see that stuff documented and maybe we can get some more info from the team working on Hay and see how they're doing it because they've hinted at a bunch of that stuff and whatever the heck Strata is going to be. But that'll come out at some point, but he said it wasn't very important. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. I've often wondered before the updated like turbo stuff, what it would be like, cause I have react native experience and by react native experience, I mean, I've built a bunch of random crap in react native and I've wondered what it'd be like to shove turbo into that. But then I also remember that react native is already an abstraction And then if I'm going to use another abstraction, I'm probably just going to end up in abstraction hell and nothing will work together. But it is a thought that I've been curious about. Yeah, I played with that a little bit. And it's interesting because doesn't uh, React Native have a like compile to web like concept there where it's like you could write the same UI that would be functional in the browser, but the design and stuff on mobile Or like even some components, like you want a video player or something that's native to the device and it's not going to be the same on the web. And it's the same thing I ran into working on pay. It was like, yeah, it'd be great if Stripe and Braintree and Paddle and whatever else work similarly, but fundamentally they're not the same and they can't work the same. So you have to like just embrace that a bit. So I'm curious what will happen with the React Native stuff in the long term, I think will be interesting because yeah, it's cool to hopefully abstract it and make them treat this component the same everywhere. But the patterns are always different. Like the floating create button on Android. That's not a thing in iOS. Or even the the fact that like the standard is for iOS navigations at the bottom for Android, it's at the top. That alone is what you do. Yeah. And that's the stuff that like interesting to to think about like how that's going to work with Turbo app. Because I think that's a whole other feature that like never gets talked about in Rails. The like variants for your templates where you can have a mobile variant where it's like html.what.ios.erb or whatever. You remember those? Nobody uses them as far as I know. 
I like vaguely remember them because I never used them. Yeah. Yeah. I like remember hearing about it and being like, I guess that's useful for some situation. I'm curious if that's like a feature that they use to pull this off in, in Hay and Basecamp. I don't know, actually. I don't really know of anyone that ever used that. Could you use Turbo to build like a PWA? Like I know the fundamental thing of a PWA is you have a service worker that probably doesn't work caching things dynamically, but could you use Hay to like enhance or like to build like the PWA features or am I just completely lost? Uh, I don't know. Cause I think the, like the service worker stuff will intercept requests if you submit a form. So I think that's stuff that like maybe you could work together a bit, but I haven't gone too deep into that because I've done like some of the basic caching things and whatever. But yeah, I think it's probably in addition to all that. I don't know that you get benefits from Turbo as part of that. It may actually make it harder or something because of it's going to fire requests for any links or form submission and might just make it tougher. I'm not sure. I haven't built anything getting too far into those. I just followed some of the basic like service worker examples and stuff. And yeah, I don't quite know. Well, we all just got to figure out how much I know about PWAs. So that was nice. (laughs) Yeah, it was really insightful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you should write a blog post about it. Yeah, I'll be like, what I know about PWAs. Sometimes when I'm on a site that is a PWA, it pisses me off. (laughs) Um, You get a Dev2 article up. I'll upvote it. Well, dude, I've been, um, I've been slinging them. I need that. I need that karma. I built a PWA once. So like I had this idea with some other people that like we'd build like a social cigar smoking app. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's called Smoked. And I built it with React Native to target iOS and Android. And I got rejected by Apple because it was, even though it was 18 and up. about that. Well, he would probably be like, oh, well, God. He, <laughs> I don't know which side he would take. Yeah, it's bad for your health or the Apple, <laughs> screw Apple side. But Android was like, in 10 minutes, yeah, welcome. And Apple is like, you're a terrible human. No. And so I rebuilt it as a PWA using Create React app. Still had to build it all from scratch. Even though they're React components, they didn't map one-to-one with the web. Oh, I'm curious. Did you have to do any like preloading of pages so that they were cached for being on mobile or is it just caching as you browse the app and I really don't know I assume it's caching as you're browsing I like went off the rails literally because I built the original one using rails and react native but then I use firebase for the pwa version there's a lot of little components to that progressively loading things like I don't do that much and webpacker is was the default now is going to be that it's just a single chunk, but it's ready to go for multiple chunks, which I think is like a good enhancement to probably have. Yes. Chunk your files, people. Yeah. Along the Hotwire topic, something I've seen like 50 times, but I actually looked at yesterday was HTMX. Are you all familiar with that? It's similar, isn't it? Yeah, I know the name and just you. I've seen it a lot, but unlike you, I have not taken the extra step. So I haven't actually coded it, but we had a doctor's appointment yesterday for the baby. And so I was sitting there reading and basically, so I actually, I saw, I think I saw Sam Stevenson tweet about it one time before they relaunched Turbo. But 
what I gathered to be a really small library. And what it does is give you more interactive hypertext. So if you have a button, you can be like HX post and give it the path you want it to post to. And then if you give it uh, HX swap, I'm actually just reading their docs right now. It will, you can say replace outer inner HTML. And it expects that when I make this Ajax post request, it's going to give me HTML back and I'll just replace it. And I kept reading through it like, oh, this is more powerful than Turbo. But then I was thinking, but Rails just already gives me all of this. Like with UJS, if I kind of, UJS and Turbo, but like if I want to make a button actually be a Ajax request to go delete something, like I already have the tools to do all that. Yeah. Well, the thing about this is that button example, it'll make the request for you, but then the response is just a layoutless template, which is pretty nifty. So then it will just update your existing page. And some of those concepts are a lot of those things are the same in Turbo, which is cool. So if you have a Turbo stream form submission, you can send back events as HTML elements or whatever, but you can also do your, the turbo frames to grab things out of the response. So you can like reuse the same page, which is cool because the really cool thing about that is if you have something where the user is going to go to post slash new and they're going to need the whole layout. But if you want to render that form, you can render post slash new and it will just grab the frame portion of it and embed that into another page, which is cool. So you like have one template that you can reuse in multiple ways because the like beauty of both of these like approaches is I have one template and I can access it directly in the browser and we'll include the layout. But if we want just that for some interaction that's reactive or whatever, like then we just get that template rendered without the layout and you can cache all that too, which is super nice. So all of those can be done with HTTP caching, which is fantastic. I do remember it was funny, like seeing Evan Yu from Vue.js fame saying he canceled his Hey subscription or whatever because it was too slow, which I thought was funny because a lot of this does depend on these interactions To make them fast, you need HTTP 2 at least. You don't want any delay in negotiating that request with the server. That needs to be something that's as instantaneous as possible. And people talk about like the HTML being bigger than JSON. Yeah, maybe. The benefit is like the HTML is just a few extra characters around your JSON and it can control CSS and other things like that along with it. So it's like instead of shipping a bunch of JavaScript to generate HTML, like you're probably shipping a lighter weight thing in a way, as long as you're reusing your rendering client side a whole bunch, then sure, you probably save some data, but not a lot. And it's not going to make much difference over the wire because those requests happen pretty fast, like milliseconds. You forgot the biggest benefit. You don't have to use JSON. (laughs) Yeah, JSON, I wish it had some... I was reading something the other day, like maybe on Hacker News that was like imagining the next version of JSON that would like support comments and things like that are like, why the hell doesn't it support that? Doesn't uh, JSON 5 support that though? It might. Or, there were I might be making about, that up. They were talking about things like that. There's which, JSON versions? 
Oh yeah, dude. You know how there's like HTML and then there's HTML5, there's JSON and there's JSON5. I'm not making this up actually. I believe you. I just, I'm so ignorant to all that. Because why would you want another version of JSON? Yeah. I like seeing this approach just for the simplicity of HTMX or turbo or whatever. Like you're just writing your regular old server side rendered stuff. You get all your, that's another fun thing about, Oh, guess what? All of those active support methods you love, like pluralize, you got to go build that from scratch in JavaScript or import another package for it. And you end up duplicating all that logic from the server and sending it over to the client so they can do simple things like pluralizing or whatever. And it's, do we really need to do that? No, we can just let the server do that. Who will do it faster and more reliably? Because another piece of this is the assumption of all the client-side stuff is that your device is going to be fast, which it may or may not be. And your internet connection needs to be able to download your five megs of JavaScript. And if your device is an older iPhone or something, it may take a long time to render your React stuff. And it's probably way more performant to actually just ship over some HTML changes and some lightweight stimulus controllers and whatever else. Because the ESM stuff makes that super simple now, which is so cool. I love that. I have an actual question after this, but I put Turbo on my website because now that I've like actually built my website and I'm not tinkering with it, the rebuilding it basically, I can actually like tinker with like fun parts of it. One of them was adding Turbo. And I was like, oh, I don't even really need... Because I wanted, I added some stimulus too. Because at first I was using Alpine and then Turbo and Alpine is not great. So I was like, okay, I'm going to add stimulus. And with Skypack and Snowpack, dude, it's beautiful. I don't even have to install them locally. They just get installed dynamically. It's One thing we did not ask DHH about, and I heard some people talking about this, is what is the fate of UJS? Because a while back, DHH had said UJS was essentially deprecated. And I don't remember where he said that. I'm pretty sure it was like on a GitHub comment. But I wonder in Rails 7, are they going to remove Rails UJS? And if so, that's going to majorly change the upgrade or the feasibility of the upgrade as well. Yeah. For some teams. Yeah, certainly. Some of that stuff, you could probably replace it with some other library or something, I guess. It's not too hard. There's not a lot of functionality that it provides. Most of the time, it's like the submitting a form is JavaScript or something, or like making it the common one is like using a logout button, which is a link, but you use UJS to convert it to a delete request instead. And the advice is just replace it with button two and make it a form. And then you just have to worry about your styling then. And that is correct HTTP or HTML like semantics and stuff, which makes sense. Like that is probably the way it should be done. So maybe some of that stuff will get removed or whatever. I still see like the rails.ajax being useful because you will probably need to call that from a stimulus controller or something that I don't think turbo has a way to make a, an Ajax or a, or fetch request or whatever, just out of the box. There's maybe that will be something that will be added. The data confirm and the data disable with and those things probably could be replaced as like stimulus controllers. 
but then you might be a little heavy handed on, you have a submit button with data confirm and data disable with and whatever, or data controller disable with and all that. So in theory, I think it could all be moved to like stimulus controllers and that would probably work fine. But yeah, I'm curious to see what will happen. I know that somebody had started a pull request that was like experimenting with that. What would they look like to move that over? But it's not going to be super straightforward because it's a little bit different. Right. You know? And that's why I was like, if Rails 7, and I'm, I have no idea if it will or not. If Rails 7 does ship without UJS, the upgrade path becomes quite steep depending on the way you've built your application. Also on that note, Raphael said on Twitter that they're targeting RailsConf for Rails 7's release. Ooh. And... You would expect that they would have already replaced it in the the repo by now. Or like they don't think it's too hard to do and it will be done before then, I guess. But that's not very far away because we're recording on the 26th of February and what is it, April 13th or something for RailsConf. Uh So that's not a lot of time. I am really curious because... Rails UGS is still written in CoffeeScript in the, I know. In the Rails repo. So I'm really curious because it would make sense if they do rewrite it. They're going to just do something more modern with it, not CoffeeScript and TypeScript. Guess, yeah. Has any one of the Rails core team talked about TypeScript? Because they do use it for stimulus and I think for turbo development. Yeah. Well, DHH talked about this and I think I listened to Sam and I think I've listened to them talk about it is that the way they feel, and I very much feel the same way is that if you're building libraries, TypeScript is awesome. And yes. if you're building applications, TypeScript will make you want to move and start a farm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's almost like a taboo subject in Rails almost to talk about it. I don't see a lot of people. The only one I know who is talking about is Noel Rapp in his book on stimulus and Webpacker, which got delayed because of Turbo. I don't even know if the official version is out yet. I, I bought it like a while back in early release, but a lot of those changed with stimulus too. He did a bunch of stuff with TypeScript in that book. Yeah. So I've added TypeScript to an application. I removed TypeScript from an application. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> but on libraries, like if I'm building little like JavaScript libraries, I will sometimes reach for TypeScript. Because it's nice there, but not in an app. Yep. So I don't know. I've had this idea for five or six years, probably at this point. One of my friends from college and I have talked about this for a long time. When Crystal came out, the benefits of using Crystal, because like it, in, it can infer the types from the code you write, or sometimes you have to write the types out. How nice would it be for the millions of times that we see these repeated errors in Rails where like you pass something into Rails and you meant to pass in an object, but it was nil and like Rails just chokes and doesn't give you like a useful error message. A framework like that could use Sorbet or RBS or whatever to go give you, we need you to at least implement this enumerable or whatever. The errors for newbies using Rails would be so much more useful. and. That might become a problem though for some really complicated usage though, where someone's like implementing this crazy thing that acts like active record relation, but it's not, it's their own repository wrapper pattern thing or something totally different. 
Yeah. And you're like, you may not be able to do that if the types are too strict, which ends up being like a project like Rails is probably used in a million ways you never planned. So it might not be a good one to actually do too much typing on. But for something smaller like Turbo or Stimulus, all day. Yeah. Types make perfect sense for that. And it's going to make using it really straightforward. So it's interesting to see that because the idea my friend and I were talking about a long time ago is like, imagine a day where you could write your Rails code in a flexible mode and you're building your app and you're figuring out your types and whatever you're going to be doing. But as your application solidifies more and this is how it's going to work, imagine being able to flip a switch where like it's now more strictly typed and then could even potentially be just like compiled like crystal. And then you could benefit from both worlds of a dynamically typed language and then eventually convert it into a statically typed one for like ultra speed. That would be the coolest thing. You get that with crystal, but you don't. It is still very strict about types because it has to be. That is the way that it is. But eventually I can see those bleeding together more and it being able to be like, yeah, we're spiking out a new project. We have no idea what we want to do. And that's the like, benefit that people find with Mongo is who cares? We don't have to run migrations all the time. We just change things and then it's there. And then once we're happy with that, we leave it. And that's cool. Like It allows your development speed to like go really fast. Yeah, that was an idea we had, but that is not an easy thing to implement. Or maybe it just ends up being like a truffle ruby instead of a ruby to crystal kind of situation. Well, the one thing I will say as we wrap up here is that the solution to a lot of the problems that people think types will solve can mostly be solved by learning to write better Ruby. The nil, oh my God, there's a nil here and suddenly my app is broken. You can prevent that with better programming of Ruby. Definitely. Yeah. A lot of those times people are not careful about default values or something. You accept a nil when you didn't think you were or whatever. And yeah, a lot of the cases are like, you could have just written more robust code that just handles errors better. One of my favorite things is like Stripe's API errors are, I mean, they're amazing, right? Like you request a customer object that's like a test one in production and their error message is like, hey, looks like you're using the wrong API keys because this seems to be from test, not prod or vice versa. And it's, oh man, it's just, they went the extra mile and even can look it up and confirm that and be like, yep, looks like you swapped the wrong keys. Can you imagine how many people they've saved or how many support requests they've saved by just doing that? And that's probably the future of building frameworks and libraries and stuff is just becoming a mind reader. That's it. There, I, I think that's all we need. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything else. That just hey, yeah. learn to we read minds. Need more tarot cards. Yeah, we need more crystals. <laughs> yeah. All right. See ya. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> bye. Ha, ha, ha.